Carolyn and I have a very good friend in California. Her name is Marianne Barnett, who likes to read the last chapter of a book first. Uh, she says she does so because it takes all the, uh, all the fretting out of reading. She can uh, follow the action of the story without getting uh, unduly concerned about the hero and, and heroine. She knows the outcome of the book before she begins. She can't begin, she says, until she uh, begins at the end. Now, that's one way to read a book. And uh, it's very helpful sometimes in understanding a book. And therefore, I would like to approach our study in 2 Timothy in that way this morning. I'd like to begin uh, at the end, in chapter 4, because I think it will give us a a better understanding of Paul's state of mind and uh, of the various themes that he develops throughout the book. Now, uh, as, as Brian mentioned, we'll be preaching on Sunday morning on the material that you're studying during the week in the growth group. So this will help reinforce these passages of Scripture in your mind. Uh, You should come with a great deal of of built-in motivation uh, to these Sunday morning services because you'll have a chance to understand for yourself first the argument of the passage and discuss uh, discuss it in the growth groups. Now, let's begin reading with with verse 9. Chapter 4, verse 9. Paul writes, make every effort to come to me soon. And a bit later in this chapter, in verse 21, he will write, come to me, please, before winter. It's fall of AD 67. Winter is coming on. Paul's need is is urgent. Some of the other translations uh, add the note of urgency that's here in the text. Please come is the idea. Now, the reason for his urgency uh, follows in verse 10. The little preposition for introduces an, an explanation. For Demas, having loved this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Now, there is a real note of, of pathos in that, uh, in that simple statement. Demas, for the oldest and perhaps the most terrible reason of all, had forsaken his good friend, the Apostle Paul. He loved the world more than he loved the Apostle. Demas was a very good friend of Paul's. They had been associated together in ministry. He's mentioned in uh, at least two of Paul's books. And uh, was a very close uh, personal friend and associate. But for some reason, he left Paul in the lurch and went to Thessalonica. Now, we know from uh, other uh, Uh, from reading between the lines a bit and from looking carefully at the book of 2 Timothy, that Paul had become an embarrassment to his friends. Uh, He writes in another place, All those in Asia have forsaken me. Asia was the place where he had planted the churches in Iconium, in the cities of Iconium and Lystra and and Derbe in in the city of Ephesus and Colossae. And uh, as you know, these were uh, cities containing churches to which he had written letters. These were dearly beloved brothers. But for some reason, Paul now was, was an embarrassment. He was persona non grata. And uh, people were leaving him. And Demas is one of them. Demas has forsaken me, having loved this uh, present world. Crescents 
has gone to Galatia. We don't know anything about Crescens other than what we're told here. He was a Roman. His name is Latin. And uh, he probably was in Rome where Paul was located when he wrote this book. And uh, whether he deserted him or whether he was dispatched by the apostle, we simply don't know. But uh, Paul now is, is, is deprived of another friend, Crescens has gone to Galatia. Titus, the Dalmatia. Titus is the young man to whom he penned the letter of Titus in our New Testament. And now he's gone to Dalmatia, modern-day Yugoslavia. Verse 11, only Luke is with me. And then a bit later, uh, Erastus in verse 20. Erastus remained at Corinth. Erastus was the city treasurer of Corinth and had official duties there. And Trophimus, I left sick at Miletus. Only Luke, he says, is with me. There's a real note of poignancy in, in that statement. Luke was his personal friend and, and his physician who accompanied Paul. So uh, we, we get the impression that, that the apostle is lonely. He's deprived of, of, his, of the friendship of his associates. Only Luke was there. Now, uh, as we read on in in these uh, closing remarks to to Timothy, we can pick up some additional information about the apostle. Verse 13. When you come, bring the cloak which I left at Troas with Carpus, and the books, especially the parchments. The cloak was a a leather poncho-like affair that was used as a traveling cloak and uh, also as a cover at night. So we begin to, to see another aspect of Paul's, uh, Paul's situation. He, he was cold. He was physically deprived. He was uncomfortable. Something had happened at Troas that prevented him from picking up some of his personal effects, his cloak and his books, and it was necessary for Timothy to pick those up on his way to Rome. Now, we know this was fall of A.D. 67. Rome gets very cold in the wintertime. Rome is a lot like the city of Chicago. The wind blows off of the Mediterranean, much as the wind blows off of, the, off of Lake Michigan. And uh, it's a, 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 a harsh, cutting wind. And Paul apparently was beginning to feel the effects of, of approaching winter. Uh, Additionally, Paul had been battered and and beaten throughout much of his life. He was aged. He was approaching 70, and and the chill was beginning to to creep into his body and into his bones and and into his, his joints, and he was very, very uncomfortable. So he needed his traveling cloak so he could stay warm. And uh, he says, I I want you to bring the books, especially the parchments. The books would be the secular writings that Paul was acquainted with. The parchments would be the Old Testament scriptures that he carried with him from place to place and from which he preached in the the synagogues. Uh, Paul uh, loved books. He was a man who loved to read. And uh, if, if you're a reader, if you like to read, it's a terrible thing to be separated from your books. Uh, when I was a kid growing up in Texas, we lived a part of the time, time near uh, the city of Duncanville, Texas. Now, Duncanville, Texas is just exactly what you would imagine from the name. It's just a tiny little town. There were only 100 kids in the, in the school. It was a 
K through 12 school, and there were only 100 kids there. I had about a half a dozen in my class, and we were scattered all over the cedar breaks of South Dallas County, and we hardly ever saw each other except at school, and I had nothing to do at night. And uh, very often when I, we would get through with the chores, I'd go out to our barn. We had a little barn about 100 yards from the house, and I'd crawl up in the hayloft, and, and I would read. That's when I started reading, and I read everything. I read all of Ernest Thompson Seton's books. And one summer I, I started reading the uh, poems of Robert Service, and that got me interested in Alaska, and I read everything I could get my hands on about the uh, state of Alaska. And my mother during that time bought some little book plates for me that showed a, a, a little bookworm chewing his way through a book cover. And he had a smile on his face. And underneath it said, as for me, give me a book. That, that was my philosophy of life. I just can't imagine what it would be like to not have books around. I, I, I'm still that way today. I cannot sit still. I'll read anything. The backs of cereal boxes, anything it happens to be. Uh, and, and Paul, I'm sure, was like that. Paul was well acquainted with the literature of his day and the classical Greek literature that preceded him. He quotes the Greek poets verbatim in some of his writings. And he uses the, the terms that the Greek uh, philosophers, uh, Plato and Socrates and others, used with the precise, in the precise technical way in which they used them. He was well acquainted with literature. He loved to read. And he loved to read the scriptures. Those were the parchments. And he didn't have those at hand. So he was, uh, is, is, in addition to being physically deprived, he was intellectually deprived. Uh, deprived. He missed his books. And then as, as we read on, uh, he says in verse 14, Alexander the coppersmith did me much harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Be on guard against him yourself, for he vigorously opposed our teaching. Uh, there are many, many Alexanders in the Bible, and we, we don't know who this particular Alexander was. Uh, fathers in those days often named their children after Alexander the Great because he was such a, such a hero to the people of that day, just as uh, I'm sure fathers who have children born this month will name their sons Pete after Pete Rose. Uh, it's inevitable. <laughs> And uh, that's why it's so hard to, to put all of these Alexanders together. There were so many of them. This one, it was a coppersmith. And uh, we're Paul says that he did him a great deal of harm. Some have suggested that Alexander was a member of his congregation and he only put a penny in the offering plate. Uh, but I'm sure that's not uh, true. Uh, it's rather that he, he turned Paul into the authorities. The, the phrase that's used, did me much harm, is a technical legal term that means to accuse. This man apparently was responsible for Paul's legal problems. And uh, he says to Timothy, watch out for this man. He is very treacherous. You can't trust him. Uh, apparently Alexander was in Ephesus, where we know Timothy was. And he was a threat to Timothy in his ministry. And Paul is concerned about uh, this young man. So that adds to Paul's list of uh, problems. He is socially deprived, he's physically deprived, he's intellectually deprived, and he's worried, he's concerned about this young man. Now let me tell you about Timothy because we're going to confront him over and, and over again through the, through the book. Timothy was a, when, when Paul first met Timothy, he was a very young man. 
uh, early teenage, perhaps preteen years. Paul met Timothy when he came through the city of Lystra. Paul was making his way through the Roman province of Asia Minor, what we call Turkey today. And uh, he was evangelizing in the cities in the interior, in Galatia, the cities of Iconium and Lystra and Derbe. And he came to Lystra and he met this young man and he was impressed with him. As a matter of fact, the people there in Lystra were impressed with him, though he was very young. He was raised in a godly Jewish family. His mother and grandmother were Jews, and uh, they loved the Lord, and they loved the scriptures, and they had introduced this uh, young man to the Lord very early in his life. And when the Apostle Paul came through and preached that Jesus was the Messiah, he believed. He immediately realized that this was truth, and he began to follow the Apostle Paul as as that uh, great missionary trek throughout the Roman Empire, evangelizing cities and planting churches and writing scripture. They became good friends. He was Paul's protege, his disciple, his intern. And at some point in Timothy's life, while he was still very young, probably early 20s, he was commissioned by the apostle to go to Ephesus and given the responsibility for leadership in that city. Very uh, difficult place to minister. We'll talk a great deal about the city of Ephesus as we move through the book because understanding the, the uh, setting. Timothy's setting helps to understand the stress that he was under. It was a busy cosmopolitan town, but a very evil town, a sex-saturated society. Everything in that city was centered around the worship of the goddess of sex, and, and that's where Timothy was. And he was very young, ill-equipped for the task. He felt very inadequate. He was naturally shy and timid, more inclined to lead, lean upon the Apostle Paul than he was to lead. And uh, Paul is concerned about him. That's one reason why he wrote, to warn him about Alexander. Watch out for this fellow, he says. He's treacherous. He did me much harm. You watch out for him as well. And then uh, he briefs Timothy on his, uh, on his status, his legal status. Verse 16, at my first defense, no one supported me. He had no advocate. He had gone through some sort of preliminary hearing in a Roman court, and no one came to his side, but all deserted me. May I not be counted against them. But the Lord stood with me. Not to worry, he says. It's all right. The Lord stood with me. And strengthened me in order that through me the proclamation might be fully accomplished and that all the Gentiles might hear. And I was delivered out of the lion's mouth. And the Lord will deliver me from every evil deed and will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. And we ask ourselves, what is this mess that Paul has gotten himself into now? Well, let me tell you what happened. This is Paul's second imprisonment in Rome. In his first imprisonment, he was under house arrest. He was permitted to rent a house, which was his own private dwelling. And though he was chained to a Roman soldier, he had an opportunity to receive guests, and he was able to write letters, and he had a great deal of freedom. Evidently, the statute of limitations ran out on the crime that he was accused of. At least his accusers never did show up in Rome, and so they had to release him. Paul was a Roman citizen. And they released him. 
And so he began to travel again. He went west. He went into Europe and on to Spain and may have gone as far as Britain to the western extremities of the civilized world, planting churches, evangelizing these towns that had never heard the gospel before, and planting churches and leaving behind the scriptures. In the meantime, about, 60, about AD 64, uh, Rome burned, and Nero blamed the Christians, and a great wave of persecution, imperial persecution now, uh, broke upon the church. Uh, they, they hadn't experienced this sort of opposition before, but now Christians were imprisoned and put to death simply uh, because they bore the name of, of Christ. And because Paul was the recognized leader of this hated sect, he was hounded and hunted down and finally was captured in the city of Troas. And that's probably why he left his cloak and, and his books there. And it was led off in chains to Rome where he went through a preliminary hearing where he was indicted and then he was bound over for trial and at his final trial he was condemned to death. A few days or weeks after Paul wrote this letter he was taken down on the uh, Ostian Way the great north-south uh, road that runs through the, the country of Italy and uh, he was beheaded by Nero's execution. So this book is Paul's last words. That's what makes it so significant. Uh, he may have written other letters, but they have not been preserved. These are the last preserved words of the Apostle Paul. And a person's last words are always significant. If you want to know what's on a person's heart, if you want to know what drives them, what motivates them, then, then listen to what they say at the very end, because their, their mind is focused upon the things that really matter. Ray Steadman told us Thursday night about a man, a butcher, who was dying, and he had bequeathed his shop to his son, and he wanted to give him some last words, and the young man bent over the, his father to, to hear the, the last, his last utterance, and he said, Son, slice the meat thin. <laughs> that, that's what was on his mind. And uh, that was his philosophy of life. That was what was important to him. And that's what we learned from this book. If you want to know what really mattered to the apostle, it's what you have in this book. And that's why it's so significant. As Howard Hendricks says, last words are lasting words. These are Paul's last words to Timothy and to us. Uh, we're not being presumptuous by reading this book. It's not a piece of private correspondence because at the very end, Paul's parting word is the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. And uh, the word is plural. So this was a book to be read not just by Timothy, but by the entire church. So we're not reading somebody else's mail. It's all right. This is a letter to us as well. Now, with that as, uh, uh, as introductory material, let's turn back to page one, chapter one of Second Timothy. Second Timothy 1, 1 and 2. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, according to the promise of life in Christ Jesus. To Timothy, my beloved son, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is a conventional introduction to a piece of first century uh, correspondence. If you picked up anyone's letter from this period, this is the way it would be introduced. A to B greeting. 
but Paul packs it with significance. He describes himself, first of all, as an apostle of Christ Jesus. That's one of the great themes of this book, the apostleship of Paul and what it meant to him. Paul, you know, was a special person. The apostles were unique. There has never been anyone quite like the apostles before, and there is not anyone like them since, or has not been anyone like them since. There are no apostles today. An apostle was someone who was sent out with Jesus Christ with the very authority of Christ himself. The rabbis had uh, uh, emissaries that were sent out that were called shaliach in, in Aramaic, those who were sent. And uh, uh, scholars are convinced that that word is the exact equivalent of the Greek word apostolos, which means apostle, and uh, which is our word for apostle. And uh, in, in the, the rabbinic writings, they say when the shiliach is sent out, it is as the rabbi himself is sent out. In other words, this person who goes out has the authority of the person who sends. And that was true of the apostles. And I believe there were only 12 of them. There are some people in the New Testament who were called apostles, such as Andronicus and Junius and Barnabas and others, but that word was used in a non-specialized sense. There were really only 12 apostles, and I think they were the 11 plus Paul. Uh, I think so, because if you turn to Revelation 21, where there is a picture of the New Jerusalem coming down from heaven, which is a symbol, a symbolic representation, representation of the church, that city has 12 foundations, and on each of the foundations is a name of an apostle of Jesus, which leads me to believe that this is simply a symbolic way of saying that the church is built upon the 12 apostles, the original 11, less Judas, plus the apostle Paul. These were the men who went out evangelizing where the gospel had never been preached, who planted churches, who established order in those churches, and then left behind Scripture to guide the churches. And these men were aware that they had the authority of Christ himself, which no one has today. What we do is simply say again what the apostles said. We, we don't have their authority. When they spoke, it was as our Lord himself speaking. That, I, I've said before, I've always had a little bit of trouble with red-letter Bibles. Uh, if you have a red-letter Bible, please don't get rid of it. it, it, it they're fine Bibles. But, but uh, it, understand that the red-letter portion of your Bible, which is Jesus' teaching, is not more important, doesn't have greater authority than the writings of Matthew or John or Paul or any of the other apostles. They are equal in authority. When these men spoke, they spoke with the authority of Christ. Now, that's one of the themes of this book, the powerful ministry of apostleship, which was given to Paul, which he says came to him by the will of God. Didn't come to him through the laying on of hands by men. No man commissioned him. Jesus Christ himself had commissioned him to this task. Now, let me show you how he develops this idea in, in the book. Oh, first, let me give you an illustration of how conscious he was of his authority. Uh, turn with me, please, to chapter 3. In, in verse 13, he describes uh, the, uh, uh, the, the process by which things will go from bad to worse. Evil men and imposters will come deceiving and being deceived. You, however, 
Continue in the things you have learned and become convinced of, knowing from whom you have learned them. The whom is plural. It's a reference to Paul and the other apostles. And, verse 15, that from childhood you have known the sacred writings which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. Uh, the word that's translated here, sacred writings, in Greek is hey graphe, the writings. And it's a technical word in the New Testament for the Old Testament. Do you see what Paul is saying? He first calls Paul to listen to what he has learned from the apostles, and then listen to what he has learned from the Old Testament. And then he says in verse 16, in fact, all scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect or mature, thoroughly equipped unto every good work. You see what he's saying? He's saying the apostolic writings are on a par with the Old Testament. And when Paul spoke, he spoke with the same authority that Isaiah had, that Jeremiah had, that David had, and that Moses had. The greatest of the Old Testament prophets, you see. He didn't quibble. I mean, the church didn't quibble about that. He had authority. Now, notice the way he develops that in, in the book. Turn back to chapter 1, verse 12. Paul says uh, in verse uh, 11, excuse me, verse 11. He says, I was appointed a preacher and an apostle and a teacher. For this reason I also suffer these things, but I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed. Then I am convinced that he is able to guard my deposit until that day. Now, the New American Standard Bible uh, translates uh, what I have entrusted to him. But the text simply says, my deposit. And I'm convinced that Paul is talking not about what he has deposited with Christ, but what Christ had deposited with him. We'll talk more about that verse later. I think I can convince you that that's what he's saying. His point is that my gospel was given to me by Jesus Christ himself. It was a treasure that was deposited to my account. It was given to me. That's why he talks about my gospel. It doesn't mean it was a gospel he made up, but it was a gospel given to him directly by Jesus Christ. He was given it by revelation. He didn't get it by reading someone else's writings. He didn't get it by contact with the apostles. It was given to him by Jesus Christ himself. Now he says, I am convinced that my deposit will be guarded until that day. In verse 14, he says, Timothy, you guard through the Holy Spirit who dwells in us the treasure which has been entrusted to you. The Lord entrusted the gospel to Paul. Paul entrusted the gospel to Timothy. And in chapter 2, verse 1, Paul writes, You therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus and the things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, these entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. You see what he's saying? The Lord entrusted to him the gospel. He gave it to Timothy. Timothy is to give it to faithful men who give it to faithful men who give it to faithful men and women who give it to faithful men and women. And it comes down to us like, a, like an Olympic runner passing the torch on from one generation to the next. So that what we have today is the apostolic gospel. Now, that's the first thing that we need to learn from this, from this book. That's a, that's a theme that we'll come back to again and again and again. The power of the apostolic message. He says at the very end, Timothy, the world is going to go from bad to worse. 
Things are going to get worse and worse. Nevertheless, he says, preach the word. What word? The apostolic word. The word that comes down to us through the New Testament from generation to generation. Preach the word. Now, he doesn't mean go to seminary and learn how to preach. That's not what he's talking about. The word preach was uh, had to do with heralding. It was the word for the herald of the king who went throughout the Roman Empire announcing the proclamations of the king. It's something anyone can do. And that's what we'll learn from this book. The apostolic message has been given to us so that we can make proclamation to our world. Now, the second thing that we'll discover, Paul describes, is that his apostleship is according to the promise of life in Christ Jesus. I'm back in verse 1 now. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, according to the promise of life in Christ Jesus. In other words, the basis of my proclamation is that life has been promised to the human race. If you go go back to the beginning, the fall of man, Adam and Eve were promised that a man would come who would restore our humanity, would make us men and women again. There was an initial creation which fell apart. Something happened to the human race. We became a fallen race, but uh, we'll be restored. That was promised. As C.S. Lewis puts it, All of the leaves of the Old Testament rustle with a rumor of hope that someday a man is coming who will give us life. Now, that's what Paul was called to preach. That promised life. The Lord Jesus came, and he came to give life. Do you realize that's what people want? Do you realize that's what they're searching for? They want to really live. That's all they want. You know, it's almost impossible for us to get very upset or very angry with, with, with people that we know who are living mixed up, confused lives when we understand that what they're really looking for is life. When people are unfaithful to their mates or when they, they turn to drugs or when they cruise bars or when they become homosexual. It's because basically they're looking for life. They're looking in the wrong way. They'll never find it there. Uh, it will, uh, the results inevitably are destructive. But what they're looking for is life. That's what was promised to us. And that's what came to us in our Lord Jesus. When, when he came, he is, as Paul described him, the second Adam. The first Adam is the man uh, who, who came as man was intended to be. He was everything that you could imagine a man could be. And he fell. So our Lord came as the second Adam to, to, to give us an idea of what it means to be a real man or a real person. The incidents that surround his, his capture and his, his death illustrate that. When that mob came, to, uh, to take him off to trial. Every, everything fell apart. Everyone panicked. Peter drew out his sword and chopped off uh, the ear of the high priest's servant, and, and everyone else was running around as though their heads were cut off. They completely lost control, 
and the Lord himself is the one who has to has to bring some control back to that situation. He's now, now wait a minute, wait a minute. Let's let's get this thing organized here, and he begins to orchestrate his own arrest. And uh, when he stood before Pilate, Pilate said to him, "Don't you realize that I have the right to take your life away from you? Here is the most powerful political figure in Palestine at that time, Pilate, the, the Roman governor." He said to Jesus, "Don't you don't you realize I can take your life?" From you and Jesus said with perfect majesty and poise, no one can take my life from me unless it's given. Now here's a man who is totally panic proof. He was in control. He was really living. And that's what the gospel tells us is available to us. There is this promise of life that's in Christ Jesus. Paul will pick up on that uh, that idea in in verse nine of chapter 1 when he talks about the one who has saved us and called us with a holy calling not according to our works not because of what we have done but according to his own purpose and grace which was granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity but now has been revealed by the, the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel for which I was appointed a preacher and an apostle and a teacher. That's what it's all about. There is power in the apostolic message, and there is the promise of life. Now, there's a third theme that uh, will turn up again and again throughout the book, and it is the probability of suffering. As a matter of fact, Paul says uh, in chapter 3, verse 12, Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. My mother used to have a promise box on her uh, kitchen table. Uh, Promise boxes, I suspect, are obsolete these days. I have not seen one in years. But it was a little box that had promises from Scripture in it. That was her promise box. And every morning we would take them out and we'd read a promise. This is one promise that I never found in my promise box. But it's here in Scripture. All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And if you turn back to chapter 2, He says in verse 8, Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, descendant of David, according to my gospel, for which I suffer hardship. Do you understand? Paul realized he was an apostle because God had willed it. That's the good news. But uh, his apostleship entails suffering. That's the bad news. But that was part and parcel of his apostleship. As a matter of fact, as Paul puts it, if I don't suffer, if I don't endure all things for the sake of those who are chosen, they may not obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus. So it's a cause and effect sort of thing. I suffer, they're saved. That's the name of the game. God's will then may entail suffering. Now, uh, we don't like to hear that. Uh, it's not uh, in line with our much of the teaching of today. It's not consonant with a lot of the success theology that we hear. Uh, Vernon uh, Grounds writes, if we are exempt from disease, 
If our bodies are never stabbed by pain, if we, are, if we always have money in our pockets or reserve in the bank, if we live in modern homes and enjoy the latest luxuries, if we dress well and take long vacations at the seashore, that we consider good. Unfortunately, we find ourselves victimized by our civilization and our culture. And despite our Christian faith, we subtly equate comfort with God's will, success with God's will, pleasure with God's will. And yet such equations are a million miles removed from Paul's basic teaching that God's will may entail suffering. Our failure to grasp that truth changes what ought to be a soft pillow for our hearts into a hard problem for our heads. There's an interesting parable that Jesus once told about a group of uh, men, laborers, who went into a field to work. Some went early in the morning. Others went uh, later in the morning. Some went about noon. Some went in the middle of the afternoon. Some went at the very end of the day. They all came to be paid at the end. And those who had borne the heat of the day received no more than those who came to work at the, at the last hour. And they complained. Why, why have we had to suffer, they say, and these others have gotten off much too light. The vine dresser says, don't I have the right to do as I please with what is mine? You see, that's what it comes back to. It's a matter of the providence of God. We know that he has the right to do as he pleases, but he's not cruel. He's much too kind to be cruel. He's not capricious. He has a will. He has a purpose. And his purpose, for the sake of the kingdom of God, or for the sake of our own growth, may entail suffering. Or it may be suffering for which we see no purpose. God does not have to tell us why we're suffering. All we know is that it all works together according to this grand scheme that God has to accomplish good. Our good, good for his church, for his kingdom. We may never see the results. We, 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 we don't mind suffering as much if we can see our spouse come to Christ because of it, or our children come to Christ, but we don't see anything. That's the hardest suffering of all, to endure. And much of that is, is, is the kind of suffering that Paul had to endure. Because here he is sitting, languishing in this dark, fetid, uh, cold cell without any hope for himself. He knew that he was facing death. The churches in Asia Minor are falling apart. His friends are defecting. He has no idea of the influence that he will have in subsequent, uh, on subsequent generations as a result of his writings and his ministry to the church. He's operating in the dark. He doesn't know. But he's not depressed. He's not down and out. He's downright excited about what God is doing through the proclamation of the gospel through Timothy and others who are able to preach. He says, I'm bound, but the gospel's not. That's good news. J. Oswald Sanders, in his book On the Maturity, tells uh, the story of uh, William Carey, who went to India just before the turn of the century and who put in long days and hours and years, as a matter of fact, translating the scriptures into uh, Bengali and uh, Sanskrit. And, and finally he completed his manuscript of the New Testament, and he was ready to go to press with it. And in 1914, a, a fire swept through the print shop where all of his materials were kept, and all of his lexicons, all of his dictionaries, all of his notes, all of his manuscripts, his vocabularies, 
all the work that he had done, the presses, the type that was set, everything was destroyed. And he couldn't understand why. It, it was such a blow to his ministry, to his life's work. But uh, he says that during that time, the promise of Scripture, or the word of Scripture, be still and know that I am God, came to him. And that quieted his heart. And uh, he wrote, It stilled me into tranquil submission, enabling me to look up and welcome God's will. To the end of his life, he never saw the reason for that terrible loss. And J. Oswald Sanders, in commenting uh, on that, uh, that terrible tragedy, wrote, Not until each loom is silent and the shuttle cease to fly will God enroll the pattern and explain the reason why. The dark threads are as needful in the weaver's skillful hand as the threads of gold and silver for the pattern he's planned. Now, I don't know why you're suffering for the sake of the gospel this morning. Many of you are, I know, but I know that God has a plan and a purpose. He's much too kind to treat you with cruelty. He's much too wise to not to have a plan and a purpose for, for what he's doing through your life and mine. What we need to remember during these times is that it is probable that we will suffer because of our proclamation of the gospel, but there is power in that apostolic message that's given to us. And it offers to people that promised life, the, prob- the possibility of, a, of living in a way that, that people could not otherwise live. Let's pray. Now, you may feel this morning as as you've uh, listened to Paul's words that like Paul you're in prison uh, perhaps you're working at a job that uh, is mindless and uh, uh, frustrates you completely stifles your initiative or your creative abilities and yet that's, uh, that's what God has purposed for you. Like the Apostle Paul, all of us are what we are by the will of God. Whether you're, you're a, a laborer, a farmhand, or a rancher, or a physician, an engineer. What, whatever you are, you are what you are by the will of God. And, uh, and whatever imprisonment you experience as a result is also by the will of God. Or perhaps you're a a homemaker and you have small children around the house and you're frustrated in your desire to use your gifts and to reach out to people that you know and, and your task seems menial and seemingly meaningless and you feel enslaved in prison. What whatever it may whatever your your state status may be, do you realize that that's God's will for you? That God has placed you there. Lord Jesus, we, uh, we realize that we are running a course that you have set for us. It's not always the, the course that we would choose. It's not the plan that we would make. But nevertheless, it's good and acceptable and perfect. And we have at our disposal, Lord, this powerful message, which comes to us from the apostles. Which, uh, which reveals your will. 
And we have the promise of life that sustains us and provides what we need in in every circumstance. Lord, help us to make the most of our time, wherever we are, to reach out to those that are nearby, to be strengthened by your word, and to strengthen others by that word. And as we study this book together, Lord, would you would you teach us the things that we need to, to know to be more effective preachers, proclaimers, and believers of the life that's in Christ Jesus. We ask in his name. Amen.